If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 27, so the last paragraph of chapter 15. And for all intents and purposes, at least as we approach it today, this is, this is entering into sort of a new section of Exodus. Uh, a lot of people, when they try to uh, uh, observe the structure and the flow of the Exodus storyline, break it up into three parts. The first being uh, Israel in Egypt. The second part, which we're starting today, Israel in the wilderness. And then the third part, which starts uh, around chapter 19, Israel at Sinai. So Israel in Egypt, Israel in the wilderness, Israel at Sinai. And let me go ahead and, and let you know, before we read the passage and before we begin to work our way through it, why this somewhat brief section, say from 15 to 18, is so valuable to us as Christians. We mentioned, it was either last week or the week before, that the work that God does in bringing his people out of Egypt is a model of redemption, his, his redemptive work for his people, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. That the New Testament, both in the Gospels, in the Epistles, in Revelation itself, use Exodus language and imagery to say what God did for his people in the Old Testament is what he has done for his people in this new covenant through Christ. And so we are invited on the authority of God's word to see ourselves in the experience of Old Testament Israel. Some differences, yes, but many similarities. One of the ways that we read this section of scripture well is to read it this way. Just as God redeems a people for himself, and sets them free from their bondage and slavery in Egypt, which corresponds to our bondage and slavery to sin and to death. And he does that, he brings them out of that old life so that he can lead them home to where they will dwell with him. That's what he's doing with us. He brings us out from there to bring us in to his presence. In the in-between, though, between the exit from our old life and our entrance into our rest and dwelling with God in his place is the in-between, which is our wilderness experience. That's what you're living right now if you are in Christ. The way to read, I think, these chapters in Exodus, at the end of chapter 15 through 18, and even beyond, is to consider that what God is doing with his people in these passages, he has given to us as a model or as an instruction for how he works with his people now in our wilderness experience. We have been redeemed. We have been set free. He is leading us and will bring us safely home, but we're not there yet. And while we move towards that destination and to get home, we are certain to experience our own sets of trials and disappointments and surprises, but God is going to be faithful through them all. So follow along with me. In Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27, 
this short little paragraph serves as something of uh, an overview or a model for all the other experiences in the wilderness, the ups and downs. There's a lot that's packed into a few short verses here. But the thing that you want to take note of as we read, the main point or the theme that's being communicated here is that the Lord will sustain the people that he saves. So he has saved his people, and he will now sustain them as he leads them home. Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. Marah means bitter. It's creative, huh? Verse 24, So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he, Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of, the disease, uh, none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the, way, uh, beside the waters. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father, would you look on a very weak and timid people who are so easily distracted and dismayed by the tests and trials of this life, and would you please have mercy on us? Not for our sake, but for the sake of Christ, your Son, who bled and died so that we could be adopted into your family. Father, would you listen to the voice of your Holy Spirit who testifies with our spirits that we are your children, but we are a weak and needy children who need our faith strengthened, who need to be reminded over and over again that you are good and that you are trustworthy. I pray, Father, that for anyone here who is experiencing the bitterness of wilderness life, that you would comfort them by a reminder of who you are at the very core of your being. And Father, I also pray that if there is anyone here who is trying to make life in this barren wilderness existence, that they would find the futility in that, that their eyes would be open to see where the water of life is to be found and that they would enter into life by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in our Savior's name. Amen. So the Lord will sustain the people he has saved. We're going to try to hit this in three ways or with three points. Number one, we're going to make the observation that God's people pass through a wasteland. God's people pass through a wasteland. You might, if you have the, uh, the sermon outline or the notes, you might even want to put in parentheses, God's people pass through a wasteland on their way home. We never want to lose sight of the fact that all of this is moving somewhere. So God's people pass through a wasteland. Number two, that while in that wasteland, God will provide for his people's needs. 
God will provide for his people's needs. And then number three, God promises to heal his sick and weak people. God promises to heal a sick and weak people. Let's start with number one. God's people pass through a wasteland. One of the things that we want to be careful that we do not do when we read this is to minimize the crisis that Israel finds herself in. That is to say, we don't want to read this passage and say, oh, they traveled a couple days and they didn't have water. Oh, what's the matter? Poor little kids. Are they parched? They didn't bring their thermos with them. They didn't bring their bottle, right? No, 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 no. This, this is not people complaining or grumbling because they don't have creature comforts. These are people who find themselves in a life-and-death situation. They're not finding water in the wilderness, and if they don't find water, they die. So, what we want to recognize up front is that this is a serious issue for Israel. We ought not to minimize it, and then in light of that, then we want to say, and if God was good and faithful to provide for his people in a moment, in a time of crisis, how much more certain can we be that he will provide for us in our times of crisis, in our times of need? But the other thing that we want to notice is that it says later in the passage, down at the very end of verse 25, that there, at the place where they found bitter water, at Marah, there he made a statute and a regulation for them, and there he tested them. So there are two perspectives at play here. One, from the perspective of the people, this is a crisis. They find themselves in a situation where they are facing a life-and-death dilemma. We're in the wilderness. We're in a wasteland, a barren place. We have no water for ourselves and for our livestock. And if we don't get water, we don't survive. Meanwhile, from God's perspective, we're told in verse 25 that God has brought them to this place in order to test them. Which means that this is not a surprise for God that they find themselves in this situation, that this is actually by design, that God has orchestrated this because he's doing something in the crisis. Namely, he's testing them. So listen to what Moses says. You don't need to turn there. Moses, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 8.2, as he's reflecting back on how the Lord led and worked with the people for 40 years in the wilderness, Moses makes this statement. He says to the people, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. So pause right there. Who has led them to bitter waters? God has. You shall remember how the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you 
to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. The test that God is bringing on His people in this crisis situation is a test of their hearts. What's deep down? When they're squeezed, when they're in pressure, when they don't know how things will play out, how will they respond? So Jesus says later in the Gospels, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? When, whenever you and I speak in a time of testing or trial, we can say that we're being caught off guard, and oh my goodness, I can't believe I said that. Jesus says, well, no, you said what you said because whether you recognize it or not, what just came out of your mouth resides deep down in the wells of your heart. And the Lord is using this crisis to test His people to discern what is in their hearts. Hold your place here in Exodus 15 and go to Psalm 78. Always interesting when you find events in the Old Testament that are commented on later in the Old Testament, sort of shining light back or giving us deeper insight into the dynamics of what was going on. This is a Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 78, verses 40 through 42. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Notice verse 42. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary. Go back to Exodus 15. What does Israel's grumbling in their time of crisis, in their time of need, what does it reveal about their heart? Psalm 78 says, what it reveals is that they did not take to heart what God did in saving them out of slavery in Egypt. It did not make a lasting impression on their heart. Listen, put yourself back in the timeline of how these things are playing out. Three days is a long time to walk through the wilderness without finding any water, granted. But understand, this is three days after what we just read about in chapter 15, which is the people singing together about their miraculous deliverance at the sea where God exercised His creative powers to part the waters, enable them to walk across on dry ground, and then use those same waters to destroy their enemies so that they would no longer have to fear being brought back into bondage and slavery again. Three days later, and they are talking and acting as if that never happened. Three days. By the way, 
three days later, they are grumbling about the fact that they have no water. Meanwhile, we've also been told that from the very first point at which the people begin to make their way out of Egypt, God is leading them, manifesting to the natural eye His presence with His people by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. They are grumbling even as they see with their own eyes the manifestation of God's presence in their midst. That is how weak and fickle their fleshly hearts are. And people, do not kid yourself. That is how weak and fickle our hearts are as well. What does grumbling reveal? What does it show? Grumbling is the fruit of a forgetful root. It's the fruit that comes out when someone has lost sight of the fact that God has delivered them and saved them in a miraculous way. And because He has saved them, He has also given them the guarantee that He will always be with them, that He will never forsake them, and that He will bring them safely home. People who grumble are not thinking about the Lord's power to save. Why do we grumble? about our spouses, about our children, about our work, about the classroom, about politics, about this, that, and the other. We grumble when we take our eyes off of the fact that the Lord who saved us is the one who is ruling and reigning over this creation for His glory and for the good of His people. When I take my eyes off of that and only see what I believe to lack or what I think is not working as it should, that's when I begin to complain. It's unbelief that causes me to grumble and complain. You say, well, you don't understand, Merritt, how hard my test or my crisis is. That's probably true. I would never want to pretend that my difficulties in life are able to match some of the difficulties, the tests, the crises that are represented in this room. I wouldn't try to do it. What I would, though, graciously and lovingly encourage all of us to do, though, regardless of the nature of your test or crisis, is to look to Jesus. Is there anyone, anyone, in all of human history who suffered a greater trial and test than our Lord Jesus? Jesus groaned in the garden. It's okay to groan, Right? This world is heavy. This world is hard. 
This is not a hospitable place to live for people who are striving and thirsting after righteousness. It's okay to groan. Paul says in Romans 8 that precisely because we have the first fruits of the Spirit within us, that in and of itself is one of the reasons why we groan, because we know and recognize that there is something better to be had. But Jesus in the garden groaned, he never grumbled. Jesus on the cross does not grumble. He entrusts himself into the hands of his Father and believes that a faithful creator and judge will do what is right. Let me suggest that one of the best ways that we can be a witness to the power of Christ, to the transforming work of Jesus Christ, is to simply try to cross the very low but challenging bar of not grumbling. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. He has just finished telling the Philippian Christians... Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. So knowing that God is working in you and through you to accomplish His good, then Paul says this, Philippians 2, 14 through 15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. One of the ways that you show that your hope and your security is beyond the hopes and the cheap security of this life is to be found in Christ, one of the ways that you show that to an unbelieving world is by not grumbling, not complaining, because you are persuaded that all things work according to the counsel of His will. That if God is for us, no one can be against us. That if God did not withhold His own Son, but offered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? People who are persuaded and confident of the fact that God's presence will continue to provide need not grumble and complain. Which leads us to number two. You say, that's all fine and good. I'm convinced of the fact that I shouldn't grumble and complain. But the problem, Merritt, is that I do grumble and complain. Deal with that. Fine. <laughs> Look at how the Lord deals with the grumbling and complaining of His people. They complain to Moses. By the way, notice they don't go to complain to God. There is, in one sense, there is a biblical kind of complaining, but biblical complaining is always directed towards God. 
because he's the one who's ultimately in charge and responsible for everything. Side note, though. They go and they complain to Moses. Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord tells Moses to throw a tree into the water, and he transforms bitter water into sweet water. How does God respond to grumbling people in this episode? What does he do? Does he strike them dead? Does he cast them away? Say, three days ago, you people were singing my praises, and now all of a sudden, this is what I get? Fine, I'm out. I'm done. He gives them something to drink. Sheer grace, sheer mercy. I wonder how many of you in this room who have walked with the Lord for any period of time are able to look back on your walk with the Lord and say, He has been nothing but a good and gracious Father to me. I have doubted Him I have complained about his will and his way in my life. I've turned away from him to try to find my provision or my safety and security in anyone and anything other than him. And yet over and over and over again, he gives me far more than I deserve. Notice that all of this, this miraculous transformation, the exercise of God's power is being brought to bear for the good of His weak and unbelieving people. The same power that God exercised to raise you up out of your sin and trespasses, to make you alive, is the same power that is at work for you to make your bitter experiences sweet. If God can part the waters of the sea so that His people can walk through, He can make bitter waters sweet. He did it. And if God can raise you from the dead, He can keep you alive by feeding you according to His goodness and the riches of His grace. But go one step further with me. Notice here that God's response to His people is ultimately not first and foremost. Well, it, He does respond to them. I, let me back up a little bit. He does respond to them because of the fact that they are His people. Let's say it this way. The catalyst for that response is not the grumbling of the people, but it's Moses' prayer. The people complain to Moses, and what does Moses do? Moses does what the people should have done. He goes to the Lord and says, what are we going to do? And the Lord tells him, here's how I'm going to provide. Here's how it's going to be worked out. The people are saved because Moses intercedes for them 
even when they won't talk to the Lord themselves. Anyone glad that we have a true and better Moses? You ought to be. Because the fact of the matter is that there is nothing new under the sun as it concerns the human heart. And that God in His mercy provided a servant, a leader, who would intercede for His people even in their times of doubt and weakness so that they would be saved. And He has done that for us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is able to save forever those who come to Him because Hebrews says He always lives to make intercession for us. One of the reasons that you have benefited from the goodness and the kindness of your Heavenly Father is because you have an advocate, you have an intercessor with the Father who is God's own Son, who is calling out and praying for you and for me even when we will not pray for ourselves. That is how safe and secure God's people are. Hold your place here and go with me to John chapter 7. Look at verses 37 through 39. John 7 verses 37 through 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Listen, listen, listen to the pattern, what happens here. God's people in the wilderness are desperate for something to drink, or they die. Their servant leader, Moses, intercedes for them, and God gives them something to drink. Jesus, the true and better Moses, says, anyone walking through the wasteland of this life, if you're thirsty, come to me and you will find something to drink. You never have to thirst again. Everything that your soul desires will be satisfied with the water that I give. And in John 7, the water, the, the thirst-quenching water that he's talking about is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So later in John, isn't it fascinating that what Jesus says is that when I go to the Father, I will ask Him to send you the Spirit. Moses intercedes for the people so that they will be given water to drink and can live. Jesus intercedes for His people so that the Father will give to them living water in the person of the Holy Spirit. And here it is, people. If you belong to Christ by repentance and faith, you have been given 
the Spirit poured out in your heart, working in your mind, so that regardless of where you find yourself in life, you already have what you need to make it through your time of test and crisis and trial. You have it. He's already given it. And the gift of the Spirit, the living water that Jesus asked for us to receive from His Father, never runs out. It is sweet from the start, and it is sweet to the end. But listen, don't fall prey to the mindset that because God gives to His people the Holy Spirit, therefore... There is no sense in which we come to the water to drink. Even the work of the Spirit, His ministry to God's people, is accomplished through certain means. One of the ways that God ministers to your dry and thirsty soul through His Spirit is through His Word. If you find yourself in a situation where you feel like the weight of this world is going to crush you, one of the things that you want to ask yourself is, how frequently have I been running to the well of God's Word to be nourished and satisfied with His truth and promises? Another way that God satisfies us by the work of His Spirit, which is water to our soul, is in the local congregation. His Spirit is in our midst, and when I come and when I, when I take part in a gathered service like this, or when I share life outside of Sunday morning with my brothers and sisters in Christ, my experience in the Spirit is connected and paired up and is multiplied by their experience of the Spirit so that I am encouraged and given the ability to continue to press on with the encouragement and the fellowship that comes from a Spirit-filled people of God. So on the one hand, we need to be reminded of the fact that we have all that we need for life and godliness, even in our times of testing and trial, because of the Spirit that has been poured out within us. And on the other hand, we need to remember that simply because the Spirit has been poured out, on us is no excuse to go passive or not to walk forward in confidence that the path that the Lord has laid out for us is the way that He will sustain us. Point number three. God promises to heal His sick and weak people. God promises to heal his sick and weak people. Notice what he says in verse 26. If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. For the sake of time, let me try to abbreviate some of this. Let me tell you what this is not saying. This is not saying that if you obey God's commands, you will never get sick. Are we clear on that? Not the case. Godly men and women get sick. 
They contract viruses. They're diagnosed with illnesses, some acute, some terminal, some long-term. It has no bearing or reflection on whether or not they are walking in obedience. What this is saying, however, is that if God's people are walking in obedience to Him, they need not fear His destructive power on them. The illnesses that He set on the Egyptians, the plagues that He put on them, was to judge and destroy the Egyptians. If you walk in fellowship with me, you need not worry about me turning my hand against you to destroy you. But, I don't always obey. Do you? Let me try again. I don't always obey. Do you? No, okay, good. Thought I was the only one for a minute. Right? I don't always obey. You don't always obey. If our assurance and security depends upon our perfect obedience to the commands of the Lord, how can we ever be safe and secure? Well, if all that God offered and all that He promised was the first part, you must obey, that would be cold comfort to people who frequently disobey. But God says at the very end, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Notice He doesn't say, I am your defender I am your immunity. To say that I am your doctor or physician, to say that I'm your healer, implies the fact that you are a people who is sick that needs to be healed. So here's the glorious truth that we find in the Scriptures over and over and over again. God will provide for His people according to His goodness and grace. Even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. And every time that He does that, He is calling to us and saying, See, you can trust Me. You can follow. You can obey. If you walk with Me, if you obey, if you trust Me, it will go well with your soul. And I walk for a minute or a day or three days, and then I'm back to old habits. Listen, when you find yourself there, do not make the mistake of saying, well, I've blown it. I may as well try to figure it out myself. Go run to the Lord. He is full of grace and compassion. He is abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, and He will heal your wayward heart. So all of this in this brief paragraph is essentially a call to God's people to say that the people that I have saved for myself, the people that I have redeemed, I have promised and guaranteed that I will bring them safely home. They will come to where I am. And although that process, although that journey goes through 
a wilderness, a wasteland experience, and we are brought low and we are made weak and we feel as if the trials and pressures of this life are going to crush us, God, by His grace in Jesus Christ, through the power of His Spirit, feeds our souls so that we can endure. And even when we turn because of the weakness of our faith and the smallness of our souls, He stands ready to welcome us back and to heal us from all of our sins, from all of our disobedience, and to feed us and fill us one more time. What a good God. Let's pray. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. We know that you have promised to be faithful to your people. That the work that you have begun in us, you will finish and complete at the day of Christ Jesus. We know that we will one day be in your presence, safe and secure. And yet there is so much in this life that is opposed to those promises the evidence that we see around us seems to work against our confidence and our assurance in our faith. Father, build us up. Draw us by your Spirit back to your Word to be reminded of what you have said and what you have done. Draw us back to one another so that we can find encouragement every day, especially as we see that day drawing near. And Father, keep us mindful of the fact that even when we do succumb to our fears and doubts and when we turn, when we grumble, when we seek to provide for ourselves and we fall flat on our face yet again, that because of the love that is ours in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we can know that you will receive us back again. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know that kind of security, that you would move on their hearts and minds so that they would find their souls to be dying of thirst that only you can satisfy by your Spirit in Christ. Compel them to seek someone out, to run to your word, to find help in their time of need. We thank you and we praise you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet as we close in song. saints have before us gone no stopping now we're almost home that promised land is calling we're
tears shall fall, then we're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back, we're almost home. Almost home, we're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore, oh praise the Lord. We're almost home. This journey ours together, we're almost home. Unto that great forever, we're almost home. What song anew we'll sing round that happy throne? The vein of heart, we're almost home. Almost home, we're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore. Praise the Lord, we're almost home. Would you think about that day? That day that we're all together rejoicing in Him, worshiping around His holy throne. Amen. Life is just a vapor, we're almost home. That sun is setting yonder, we're almost home. Take courage for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes, we're almost home. Almost home, we're almost home. So press on that blessed shore oh praise the lord we're almost home almost home we're almost home so press on toward that blessed shore oh praise the lord we're almost home amen yes praise the lord and we do want to close with Romans chapter 15, verse 5 and 6. And I do encourage you, mingle around as we close and fellowship with one another. Romans 15, 5 through 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you.